J. Vernon McGee once said, let me remind you that this is God's universe and he's doing things his way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe to rule. You see, God is faithful to fulfill every promise and to keep every commitment he's ever made in order to accomplish his plan for this world and for your life. Yet he's obliged to do all of that in his way and in his timing, exactly how he sees fit, which is where actually most of us have a problem with God because it's not generally his promises we disagree with. It's the way he chooses to fulfill those promises that we so often find disagreeable because he doesn't always do things the way we want him to, does he, or when we want him to. Right? God, God doesn't play by our rules, which is why Christians don't always follow God's plan for their lives because even though we don't want to admit it, the truth is we'd rather God do things our way than his way. We don't say it that way, of course, but in truth, I think most of us would probably prefer it if God were following us instead of us having to follow him. And yet, because he doesn't follow us, sometimes we go our own way or other people who have influence in our lives go their own way and we veer off the path that he's prepared for us and then we get angry with him when life doesn't go the way we thought it would. We question whether God is really in control. Right, because how could a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? I've been asked that question so many times. Well, consider Job, a man whose name has become synonymous with hardship and loss and suffering after losing uh, his children all at once in the great storm that collapsed the house on top of them, after losing all of his wealth and all of his belongings and his servants to bands of raiding enemies, after losing all of his livestock to natural disasters, and after losing his health to disease, after experiencing unimaginable hardship, loss, and suffering. Job's response was, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, Job 121. In other words, no matter what's happening in my life, good, bad, or indifferent, I know that God is still in control. Which, of course, raises the question, how could a loving God who's sovereign, who's in control, how could he allow hardship and loss and suffering to exist? I mean, it seems like a fair question. Yet Solomon, King Solomon, arguably the wisest man who's ever lived, he was clear when he wrote, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Proverbs 16, 4. Well, okay, then does that mean that God created evil? No, it doesn't. First of all, evil isn't something that is created. Okay, evil is merely the absence of good. The Apostle John said all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, God created everything that has been created. In fact, God is the only person who's ever created anything. You understand that, right? Human beings cannot create. We can only fashion things out of other things that already exist. So for instance, we make food and we build buildings and we compose music and art and literature and on and on. But all we're actually doing is fashioning new things out of other things that already exist. Things that God created. Right, so we make food out of ingredients that already exist. We build buildings out of materials that already exist. We compose music and art and literature out of notes and landscapes and languages that already exist. The fact is human beings have never created anything and we never will. 
All we can ever do is fashion things out of other things that God has already created. And of course, we know from Genesis chapter one that everything God created was good, which means evil is nothing more than the absence of what is good. Evil is the rejection of what is good. And since God is the sum total of everything that is good, ultimately evil is the rejection of God. And yet even though people reject God, He's still very much in control to the point that he even uses the lives who have, uh, those who have rejected him to fulfill the good plan that he created for those who have accepted him. So even though the majority of people, according to scripture, will reject God and his plan, he remains firmly in control to ensure that the good plan he created for you is fulfilled in spite of the evil that is so pervasive in this world. In his letter to the church at Ephesus, the apostle Paul wrote, there's one God and father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. To the Colossians, he wrote a hymn, a song about Jesus Christ. It says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created for him and through him, and he's before all things and in him all things Hold together, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. These are categorical statements, absolute statements about the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. And so if all things were created by him and through him, and if he's before all things, and if in him everything, literally everything is being held together, then truly Jesus Christ is all that we need. I've mentioned this before. Jesus is our answer to every question. He's our solution to every problem, our fulfillment of every promise. He's our supply for every lack, our resolution to every impasse, our confidence for every uncertainty, our courage in the face of every fear. He is our assurance in the shadow of every doubt, our peace in the middle of every storm, and our hope in the midst of every dire circumstance that we face in this life, because he alone is in control. Of course, if you're a Christian, well, you probably already know all of that. And when asked, I think most of us would say that we believe all of that. And yet when you look at the way most of us actually live our lives, I'm not sure our daily lives, how we make decisions, uh, how we react to circumstances, how we prepare for the future, even the immediate future. I'm just not sure the way we actually live always reflects the belief that God is actually in control in control of all of that, the good and the bad and everything in between. Because honestly, think about it. If you experienced everything that Job experienced, I mean, for that matter, if you experienced half of what Job experienced, just being honest with yourself, would your response be, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And what a remarkable response to begin with, given everything he's been through. And yet I'm just not sure most of us in Job's situation would share that depth of conviction that God is still in control in our lives of all things, even and especially when it seems like everything's going in the wrong direction. And I say that simply because it seems like most of us have a bad day and we come unglued under far less pressure and disappointment in life. We react in all sorts of ways that are unfaithful and contrary to God's word and his will for our lives when life isn't going the way we want it to. And so, okay, what was it about Job then that enabled him to not only accept the reality of his circumstances, but more so to bless God in the midst of them? 
Well, it's because he believed more than anything else that despite all of the calamity in his life, Job was convinced that God was still in control and would bring about his will ultimately in Job's life no matter what the path looked like getting there. We know that, by the way, in part because of the specific way that Job addressed God in his response to all that was happening in his life. Listen, every time the word Lord is used in the Old Testament, written in the Old Testament, your Bible, it's written in one of three ways, either all lowercase or lowercase with the L capitalized or with all the letters capitalized. And if you pay attention to it, you'll notice that it's written one of those three ways in your Bible, depending on who's saying it and what type of Lord they're referring to. So when it's written in all lowercase, that's Adon in the Hebrew, it means ruler or to rule, like the Lord of a castle or the Lord of the manor. It refers to a ruler. When it's written in lowercase with the L capitalized, that's Adonai or Adonai in the Hebrew, that means my ruler, my Lord. It's a more personal way to refer to a ruler or, of course, to God. But when it's written in all capital letters, Yehovah or Yahweh in the Hebrew, that is the sacred name of God, the name God used to reveal himself to Moses from the burning bush. For the Jews, this was the unspeakable, ineffable, never to be uttered out loud, holy name of God. And so they spelled it without vowels, just four consonants, Y-H-W-H. This is the sovereign and divine name of God that was meant to express his fullness as Lord and creator of all things. The only one truly in control of all things. And notice how Lord is spelled in Job's response to the calamity in his life. The Lord gave and the Lord is taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. All three times he uses the word Lord, it's written in all capital letters. Because Job knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that no matter what had happened in his life and no matter what would happen in his future, he knew that he knew that God was in control at all times and in every circumstance of his life. Listen, the reason I'm bringing all of this up is because our story today, as we continue working our way through the book of Revelation, it's really hard to read and understand how a loving God could superintend such intense calamity on the earth if you don't first understand that he is in control, even when life seems like it's out of control, and that we have a choice in all of that to either follow his plan or our own through it all. We're going to talk about that more next week this, uh, as we finish this chapter. We're going to do the first half today. Right? To either follow his plan or our own through it all. And, that, and how that ultimately affects our lives on a daily basis. Because we all have plans and expectations for this life. Right? We all do. And yet when our plans don't go as planned, does that mean God isn't big enough to accomplish his will for your life in any other way than the way you imagined it? Is God not actually in control when things seem out of control? Or do you believe that he is as much in control in the midst of calamity as he is in the midst of calm? That he's as much in control of your distress as he is in your success? That he's just as much in control when you have no idea what's going to happen next as when everything is falling into place just as you planned it? And the reason it's so important that you get this settled in your own heart and mind is because first of all, listen, if God is in control, then you don't have to be. And I'm just telling you, there's nothing in this world more freeing than letting go of all the things you try so desperately in this life to control that you were never meant to. It allows you to respond to people and circumstances that you did not see coming in ways that continue to move you closer and closer to accomplishing God's plan throughout your life, even though the path you end up taking may look very different than the one you envisioned. 
See, at the end of the day, it's about the choices you make based on who you believe is ultimately in control of your life. You or God. So let's pick up the story where we left off last time, Revelation chapter nine. We're gonna cover the first 12 verses today. Let's read those. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had a breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he's called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Back in chapter eight, John describes the first four trumpet plagues in six verses. Yet it takes them more than three times that much space to cover the next two plagues. Why? because of the severity of the calamities that follow. As John sees a star fallen from heaven to earth and it says he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, the star that was fallen. So clearly this star is a person and yet as with pretty much every part of Revelation, there's plenty of debate as to who this star represents. Uh, throughout scripture, both biblical and apocryphal scripture, stars are personified as angels. We find that in Judges 5.20, Job 38.7, Revelation 1.20. Uh, in other Jewish writings, such as 1 Enoch 88.1, the Testament of Solomon, chapters 8 and 18. So this idea of a star representing an angel was a commonly understood concept in Jewish thought. And yet there's disagreement about the specific identity of this angel. Some believe it's a good angel, some believe it's a demonic angel, while others, including myself, happen to believe it's Satan himself. Because first of all, uh, when the Old Testament and all of the other Jewish apocalyptic writings refer to a star fallen from heaven, that specific language in the Hebrew, it's always a reference to a fallen angel. In fact, when the Hebrew language itself describes a falling star being cast down, that always refers to the judgment of evil angels. Also in the Testament of Solomon, chapter 20, verses 14 through 17, which just to be clear, it's not biblical scripture. So I'm just, this is just an example of what was commonly accepted Jewish thought at the time, okay, from their own writings. It says, good angels do not fall like stars from heaven because they had, and I'm quoting here, they have their foundation laid in the firmament, but demons appear as stars falling from heaven, dropped like flashes of lightning to the earth because they have no such foundation. And then in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, the king of Babylon is described as fallen from heaven and also as the morning star cast down to the earth which is a passage that was later applied all throughout Jewish writings to Satan himself. 
And then three chapters later here in Revelation, John sees the dragon whom he identifies as Satan cast down from heaven to earth, Revelation 12, 9. And of course, Jesus himself uses virtually the identical expression to describe Satan's judgment in Luke 10, 18, where he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And as we read on here in verse 11, John says his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek he's called Apollyon, which in Hebrew and Greek respectively uh, refer to destruction and the one who destroys. In other words, he is the destroyer. So personally, I believe it's Satan. If you disagree with me, I won't be mad at you. Uh, because look, whoever it is, what matters more is the fact that they unleash a horde of demonic locusts that emerge from the abyss. By the way, the abyss was an idiom, an ancient expression for the place of the dead, which again, we find throughout biblical scripture, including Romans 10:7 and other ancient Jewish writings, including 1 Enoch chapters 10 and 18, uh, also Jubilees chapter five. It's the place where fallen angels and evil spirits were said to be imprisoned in Luke 8:31 bound with everlasting chains in 2 Peter 2 and Jude 6. It's the place of Satan's imprisonment during the thousand year period following the return of Christ in Revelation 21 through three. And so up from that abyss comes smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then the smoke, from the smoke came locusts on the earth. A demonic plague that spreads out over the land to torment everyone who is not marked with the seal of the living God. And the, the suffering for those not marked by God is so great, it says they long for death, but they're unable to find it. The magnitude and severity of demonic activity plunges those who choose to remain rebellious against God into desperation as the era of God's patient restraint up to this point is beginning to draw to a close. And I, I just wanna pause here to make a comment about the symbolism and metaphor of these passages and those that follow through the rest of this book. It just seems to get weirder and weirder, right, as the book continues. Because there's a temptation to try and demystify Revelation so that it fits better into our present day context. Like, we wanna put things in a neat little box that we clearly understand. Like, we, we, we feel the need to solve the riddle of Revelation. Well, listen. Revelation isn't a mystery for us to solve. It isn't a secret manual that only the most spiritually astute among us are meant to understand. No, Revelation is what it is. It's a vision given to John where the veil between the physical realm and the spiritual realm is peeled back and we get a glimpse of what is happening at the end of this age for the purpose of preparing us for what is coming next, namely the return of Jesus Christ. Okay, listen, Revelation means what it says it means. And we need to be very careful when we try to interpret it that we don't make it mean something different, something that better fits our personal theology or present day narrative. And by the way, that goes for uh, times and dates as well. It's fine for us to speculate on when these events are going to unfold, that's fine, but not to the extent that we become dogmatic about it. You know why? Because you may be wrong. I may be wrong, which is fine, as long as we don't dig our heels in to the point of driving other people away from the message over our own need to be right. 
Remember the warning in chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Robert Mounts, great scholar, who writes extensively in Revelation, I'm quoting, he says, while the apocalypse uses metaphorical and figurative language with great freedom, it is not an allegory that must be decoded before it will yield its meaning. The experience itself is often what it means. To demystify the existential is more often than not to remove it from the only setting in which it can be understood. See, the point is, and I've said this before throughout this series, don't get so caught up in the symbolism that you miss the message. And the message here, at least in this part of the story, is the fact that as terrifying, as destructive, as evil, as what is happening here is, God is still in control. Notice when Satan falls from heaven, he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He didn't have it. He didn't take it. No, it was given to him. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power, like the power of the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. You understand, as horrifying as all of this is, God is still in control, which means nothing happens without his permission. Not one single thing happens in this story without God's permission. And guess what? Not one single thing happens in your life without God's permission, which should give you reason to trust him. Listen, even when your life is not going the way you hoped it would or think it should, even when you can't see him working, even when everything seems to be falling apart and out of control, I'm telling you, God is still in control which also means there isn't one thing in your life, good, bad, or indifferent, that God has missed, that he's, uh, somehow it's caught him off guard. No, if he's sovereign over the stars and sovereign over the abyss, then he is sovereign over your best days and he's sovereign over your worst days. In fact, there isn't one thing you can ever do, hear me, there isn't one thing you can ever do in your entire life that could ever wrestle one ounce of sovereignty away from God. It's not a matter of whether or not it's true. It's a matter of whether or not you believe it. And listen, it's one thing to believe in God. It is something altogether different to believe God. Certainly you must believe in him. You have to believe he's real and tangible, that he truly exists if you're to know him. But if you are ever to have any chance of living the life that he intends for you to live, the one he describes in his word, a life that if not free from fear and doubt is at least able to overcome it even in the hardest of days, a life that is full of hope and joy in the midst of great difficulty, a life of unexplainable peace and everlasting love. If you're to have any hope of living that kind of life, then you must not only believe Believe in God, but you have to believe God. You have to believe what he tells you, when he speaks to you. You have to actually believe what his word says, his promises. You have to trust his guidance and his correction and his directing in your life because sometimes those promises and that guidance and correction and directing only come through great tribulation and trials. And so look, it's, it's one thing to believe that God has a voice. 
It's another thing to believe what that voice is saying to you. This is a critical distinction, in my opinion, that needs to be made loud and clear and often in the church today because there's no short supply of people in the church who say they believe in God. But I'm telling you, a lot of those same people struggle at times in believing what he's saying to them. And here's just a little secret. Sometimes you can include me in that statement as well. I don't have any doubt that God is real and that he is who he says he is. I'm full of faith when it comes to the existence and reality of the God of the Bible. And yet there are times when I have trouble trusting his voice. Like, you want me to do what? Are you sure about that? Like, can you say it again in six different ways? And then send somebody, I don't know, like an angel to confirm it? Man, I want proof first. I want guarantees. I want security, man. I want assurances before I just go out and act on his word to me. Because sometimes it is not what you're expecting to hear. But why is that? Why isn't his word enough? We believe what the doctors tell us. We believe what our accountants tell us. Occasionally, we even believe what the weatherman tells us. But when it comes to God, the one who made our bodies and provides all of our supply and controls the weather, we really struggle to believe him. It's interesting, isn't it? Why do we have so much trouble sometimes believing what God says to us? Well, of course, it's a matter of trust or a lack of trust, as the case may be, because generally speaking, I think it's true that your level of trust is typically based on your life experiences for most people, which is one reason if you've had your trust broken over and over again that you probably have a hard time believing other people when they tell you they're going to do something because your actual life experience has taught you otherwise. Your experience has taught you that people don't do what they say they're going to do. And of course, the more often that trust is broken, the harder it can be to gain it back. And as a result, your level of trust becomes largely dependent upon your actual experiences in this life rather than the promises of God and his word. And so regardless of what that voice that is talking to you says or even who it comes from, it can be really tough to trust that voice when your life has largely taught you not to trust. And the even bigger problem with that is we tend to treat God with that same kind of distrust because we're tired of being disappointed and hurt and let down and lied to by others. And so we project all of that onto him. We want him to prove it first. We want guarantees, assurances before we allow ourselves to be trustful, hopeful that he will do what he said he will do. Of course, the exception to this generally as little children, uh, children apart from those who have been abused for the most part, have not had enough life experiences to base their trust on yet, so they tend to be very trusting, particularly other parents and other adults, which is the reason, by the way, Jesus said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it, Mark 10, 15. He was talking about those who possess a childlike trust and faith in him, but why did he even need to say that? Well, it's because he knows how deeply you struggle with that kind of trust. By the way, I hope you understand God isn't fragile. He can handle you being honest with him. He isn't any less in control when your life seems out of control. So go ahead and tell him, hey, God, I'm struggling with this. I'm having a hard time trusting your word right now in my own life. God can handle that. But it's also important you understand at the same time, he still wants you to trust him like you would if you were still a child. No matter what experiences you've gone through in this world, in this life, you remember what it was like 
before all the letdowns and heartache and disappointments and brokenness happened? You remember before all the heaviness that you carry around with you because of what life has dumped on you? God gets that. He knows. And he can handle you being honest with him. In fact, he wants you to be honest with him. And yet, please listen to this, because even though he understands your hurt even more than you do, and he wants to walk you through it, he still requires no less of you. You still have to believe what he tells you when he speaks to you. You still have to actually believe what his word says, his promises. You still have to trust his guidance and his correction and his directing in your life because oftentimes those promises and that guidance and correction and directing only come through great tribulation and trials. And that's when, that's when you have to learn to trust God the most. And listen, you can. You can trust him. Do you know there are approximately 2,500 prophecies in the Bible? About 2,000 of those already being fulfilled to the letter with zero errors. The rest have yet to be fulfilled. That's 2,000 promises made good, 2,000 commitments satisfied. Now, If you were to consider the last 2,000 things that you committed to do in your life, the last 2,000 promises you made to yourself and to others, how many of us could say that we fulfilled every single one of those commitments exactly like we said we would? You better not raise your hand. Because I know the answer to that question. Not one of us. Whether intentionally or not, right? Sometimes, of course, it's just a matter of being unable to fulfill commitments that we make to no fault of our own. Sometimes circumstances beyond our control dictate an inability to follow through with the commitment. And yet other times, if we're being honest, we simply don't do what we say we're going to do. Sometimes we just simply don't follow through. And so look, whatever the reason, whether intentional or not, there isn't one of us who can honestly claim to be 100% reliable when it comes to doing exactly what we say we're going to do every single time. Which, by the way, as an aside, is why when people tell me they don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites, I get that all the time. When people tell me they don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites, my response is, okay, so you mean to tell me you're not? You're not a hypocrite? Really? Because Christian or not, there isn't a human being alive who perfectly lives up to their own ideal about how life should be lived. Not one of us. So yes, the church is full of hypocrites, which means you should feel right at home because like it or not, you're a hypocrite too. We're all hypocrites down to the last man. God, on the other hand, is flawless. When it comes to doing what he says he will do, his track record is perfect. He always, without exception, does precisely what he says he will do, and he's proven it over and over and over and over again at least 2,000 times. And yet if you think about your own life, when I think about my life, if we're being honest, the amount of time and energy we spend thinking about how to solve problems, how to deal with our troubles, how to overcome obstacles without talking to God, probably far more than we'd like to admit. The truth is most of us spend an inordinate amount of time and energy relying on things other than God to meet our needs. 
even though all that he's ever done is proven himself to be reliable and faithful and capable to meet our needs over and over again. It doesn't make a lot of sense if you think about it because if you compare your track record of being reliable to God's, it's not like you're a close second, right? No, we're, we're never going to be as trustworthy as God is and yet most of us trust ourselves far more than we trust God. That's the bottom line. We may not want to admit that, but the truth is when whatever it is that we believe is best for us is different than what God's word says is best for us, most people will choose their own way rather than God's because we trust ourselves more than we trust him. We're gonna see that in the second half of this chapter next week. We trust ourselves more than we trust God and then we get angry with him when life doesn't work out like we hoped it would or thought it should. Why are we like that? especially when you consider his track record compared to ours and the fact that he never fails even while we continually fail. Why in the world don't we choose to rely on God more than we rely on ourselves? Well, ultimately, it's because when life isn't going our way, when real trials and tribulation come, we don't actually believe that God is still in control. But he is. In fact, there isn't one moment of your life, there isn't one breath you take, there isn't one beating of your heart, there isn't one thought held in your mind without his permission. Timothy Keller writes, if you say, I believed in God, I trusted God and he didn't come through, you only trusted God to meet your agenda. Okay, we all have plans and expectations for this life, right? Yet when our plans don't go as planned, does that mean God isn't big enough to accomplish his will for your life in any other way than the way you imagined it? Is God not actually in control when things seem out of control? Or is he simply working out his plan in this world and in your life in ways you couldn't predict? Do you believe he's able to accomplish his will in your life in ways you never saw coming? Because the fact is, that's exactly what he's been doing in the lives of men and women from the beginning. And look, if God is in control, then you don't have to be. And there's nothing in this world more freeing than letting go of all the things we try so desperately in this life to control that we were never meant to. It allows you to respond to people and circumstances that you did not see coming in ways that continue to move you closer and closer to accomplishing God's plan throughout your life, even though the path you end up taking looks very different than the one you envisioned. See, at the end of the day, it's all about the choices you make based on who you believe is ultimately in control of your life. You or God. Let's pray.